Greetings, ladies and managers, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Hunter's Maze, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called For the Fallen, written by Farmwitch4275. Captain, unidentified warp signature, Sector 7-1. The communications officer yelled out, breaking the calm of the station. All crews to stations, all hands on deck, Captain Taran yelled out, standing proud on the deck. Within minutes, every man and woman on board was at full alert. Out of their quarters and away from their comfort of the Kassarin crystal displays and at the cold steel and polymer that was their assigned stations. Warp signature is growing. Detected capital class ship. Approximate size at 1100 meters. 1100! That's a dreadnought! Shields to maximum power! Taran commanded. He was now definitely concerned. Border disputes were common, especially with the Sarantis nearby, so this very well may be a raid. Sarantis bastards might be hitting us with a surprise attack. Call for reinforcements. Warp signatures are getting stronger. Bubble collapsed in three, two, one. Target sighted. The beast that appeared from that wormhole was not a Sarantis warship. It was nothing like they had ever seen before. A massive beast the size of a small city, over a kilometer long, bristling with massive cannons. The armor plating was a dark gray in color, mixed with red and gold trimming. At its front sat a massive, terrifying effigy of some kind of creature's skull. The broadsides were covered in a strange emblem or marking. The emblem was a flag of black, gold, and red, with a seven-pointed star at the center of a large gear wheel. A black background the gear wheel being of a stitched gold and the stars being a very menacing scarlet red. We could very clearly make out that every inch of the ship's hull was covered in thousands of letters and symbols, clearly denoting a language. The closer it got, the less it scared us, and the more it awed us. Every single part, piece, and component of the ship was handcrafted to a legendary quality. Thousands of small statues covered its surface, Every armor plate covered in either a sort of holy seal or written text etched into the armor in gold or red. It approached the station where I stood on the bridge alongside the captain. It was at this point our communications failed. The radio chatter cut into dead silence, replaced by one of the most hauntingly beautiful voices that I or anyone else had ever heard. It was a language none of us could even begin to comprehend, but... The voice that spoke, it sent us into a delirium. Every radio, every screen, every communications array across the entire system now played the song. The sounds of multiple voices began to join the cacophony. A dozen voices singing in perfect unison with two speaking words. The others simply humming or maintaining a chord to carry the song. It was a song that filled all who heard it with an intense feeling of sadness, loss, and mourning. One that few of us had ever felt before. The ship slipped effortlessly through the moor of space, closing the gap, and finally coming to rest near the station. Its underbelly opened, and out came another ship, a very badly damaged ship. The massive, ornate beast moved away from the station, then pulled a turn that would have as easily sheared any ship that we had clean in half. It sat there in silent vigil as if waiting for the music to end. That haunting, beautiful sound continued for several minutes. 
On the plant's surface, thousands of men, women, children, even the normally stoic Admiralty were in tears. Soldiers in formation prepared for an invasion were standing at attention in their posts, involuntarily giving a salute. Then the song changed, an increase in temper and change in tone had suddenly all who heard it filled with a sense of pride and accomplishment. Officers wiped tears of sadness from their faces and replaced them with a sense of pride and tears of joy. Crying younglings in the streets now had smiles on their face. An overwhelming sense of pride and accomplishment smashed into the populace like a tide of water and ice. The warships we asked for arrived, but did nothing. Coming close to the ship, scanning it, or just looking at it, awestruck, as if a god had suddenly struck a chord in our souls and commanded us to shut up and listen. The song finally ended. Just as abruptly as it had arrived, the ship sped off, then vanished into the darkness through a warp portal. All communications returned to full functionality. I moved closer to the viewing screen, wiping the tears from my face as I tried to regain my composure. It was then I noticed what it had left behind. By all the gods, is that a Palaiko? I exclaimed, finally noticing the badly damaged ship near the station. But what? Captain Taran and several others got up from their stations and rushed to the viewing port. Indeed, it was a Palaiko, one of our exploration ships, carrying the best and brightest of our species lost to the empty void of space decades prior. Our first real exploration ship, a shattered hulk of scrap and twisted metal, covered in seals and mysterious emblems. The ship itself seemed unable to function. Such was the damage. So it appeared to have been secured by some kind of metal beam casing that probably stopped it disintegrating. We went into a frantic panic and swarmed the derelict. I rushed in just behind the boarding team, wearing pressure suits. We entered the ship's main cargo bay. The sight that greeted us broke us, sent us into despair. Coffins. 247 coffins, perfectly laid out in the cargo bay, bathed in a soft blue light from a series of ornate light posts that created artificial flame like candles. Each coffin had a viewing port in it, in which you could perfectly see the face of its occupant. Some members looked around and tried to open the devices, believing its occupants were still alive. I looked around, and my eye caught the glint of silver in one of the boxes. I rushed towards it. The glint of silver belonged to an all-too-familiar necklace. I collapsed on the floor, reaching out for the last hug as I saw the face of my lost granddaughter. I began to sob uncontrollably, and others rushed towards me to see if I was okay. No, I was not. Needless to say, it was a matter of severe shock as to what we encountered. It took us a few months to sort through and collate the data we acquired, mostly because we were too busy marrying the dead. The coffins were made of a polycarbonate substance similar in structure to an artificial wood substrate, Various toxic and otherwise inert fluids were used to the bodies to prevent orally slow decomposition. The bodies were reserved and positioned in such a manner that it seemed as though the occupants were asleep instead of dead. We confirmed that it was somewhat jarring to find them in the state, but also calming. 
Once proper funeral services were conducted, questions began to fly. It was an insult to the dead to try and get a sample of the fluid used for preservation, so scientists began to attempt to create their own using the minimal data that we did have. Some families attempted to volunteer their relatives to the cause. We rejected every attempt and swore an oath to never let this act be wasted. We laid our greatest heroes to rest a month after the first encounter and got back to work. What was that ship? Scans collected from every ship that could scan it or any crew that could operate despite the circumstances showed us a few things. It was made of an extremely advanced alloy that we couldn't dare replicate, showing highly advanced design that could completely ignore laser fire. Shield strengths readings were ten times what our flagships could output. It was producing energy readings that were absurd by any standard. A few of the gas giants in our home systems couldn't produce that much energy. Weapon systems from what little we could gather would outclass every ship in the fleet a hundred times over. Kinetic bombardment cannons, ballistic munitions cannons, beam weapons, point defense laser arrays, and we could, from photographs, determine the outline of launch bays for thousands of missiles and rockets. What was that language? The deck on the outside was beyond absurd. So, uh, how did they gain access to our entire communication network? No trace of any signal was ever found. No means of entry was ever located. We have no idea how they seized our entire communication system, then used it to sing. What language was it? It wasn't much to work with, but our translation algorithm and software assigned the language as Latin and began to translate the song. In the meantime, we started combing through the flight logs of the exploration ship. A simple accident involving a meteorite collision on exiting warp too close to an asteroid field. 24 crew members were left to die of starvation or exposure, while the rest died on impact or within a few minutes due to suffocation. I broke down in tears several times during the investigation on seeing recordings of my granddaughter with her crew. Finally, after a fair amount of time and several unfortunate breakdowns, the algorithm finished the translation. It is better to celebrate a life well lived and the impact it had on those around it than it is to mourn a life that has been lost. So long as you are remembered, so long as your footsteps are still where your path has led you, death is meaningless. Only those forgotten are truly dead. So long as you are remembered, so long as you are loved, you are immortal. So long as your impact is maintained, so long as the shadow of the tree that you planted still remains, you are immortal. So long as you are loved, you had a greater impact on the universe than the death of a thousand suns. And the memory of the fallen. To those who came before and give all they had to those who are now, we salute you. In memory of the fall, to those who bled in the wars long past, we salute you. Together in the future, we shall not let your sacrifice, however small it be, wasted. Together to the void, we shall carry on in your footsteps and let your thunderous voices be heard. Together! to eternity. Raise a glass to those before you and share bread with those who are now. 
together to victory, together to the void, against eternity. We shall not falter. Rest in peace, for your work is done. Rest in peace, for it is our turn now. Rest in peace, for your greatness now shines through us. We are those you fought for, those you died for, those you lived for. We are the future, and we shall not falter. Together to the future, together to the void, together for eternity. Together we are immortal. These simple words broke the empire, literally broke us. In front of a delegation of our best warriors, one of our generals collapsed into tears. Our emperor confined himself to a temple for a week, refusing any food as penance. Holy sites such as temples and graveyards suddenly became flooded with tens of thousands of people. Apologies and confessions of sins and crimes flooded the network, with former crime bosses and criminal gangs walking into police stations and locking themselves in prisons. Our entire society changed, all because of this one ship. This gesture, an act of kindness for the family of these lost and a mark of respect for the dead. Who? Why? As much as recent revelations changed us, we were still at war with an enemy two star systems away. We quickly got back into focus. Some weeks after this, however, that all came to an abrupt conclusion. I was up in the defense station, overseeing trade deals with some old allies, when a mass alert rang out. It was a Serian shield fleet. Hundreds of warships suddenly appeared at our borders. Then hundreds more. Then more than that. Then far too many. Even if we called our entire reserve, not only would they not get you in time, there was no way in oblivion that we would survive. We wouldn't go down without a fight. Damn them to oblivion. We would take as many of them with us as we could. <sighs> That's what we thought at least. Until that bastard flagship of theirs warped in behind them. The planet killer. The one that destroyed Kassim Prime at the start of the war. Thankfully, it wasn't too heavily populated, but it was no less of a loss. The fleet assembled before us was too much. Whatever fight we had, it would wipe us out. They hailed us, and the Emperor himself, Jahad Valhem, was on board the flagship. I demand your presence on board my flagship. Bring your emperor to me now. To discuss terms of surrender, I'm guessing, I said flippantly, trying to stall for time. The laser beam shot out of the flagship support fleet. That was a warning shot. I shall not ask again, he commanded. I relayed the message to my own emperor, Aphid the Seventh. Within the hour, he and I were on board a shuttle on the way to the emissary barge. The emperor Jahad was sitting on his grandiose throne in front of us, an expression of rage on his face as we approached. Juhad the red-skinned and Afahid the blue-skinned. We are a species of roughly similar features, with those of blue skin seeing slightly shorter and stronger, while our red-skinned foes have greater intellect but larger stature. Juhad, Afahid, we meet again. The two men regarded each other as we stood in their halls. The meeting broadcast for all to witness. 
a moment of tense and absolute silence. So much so, the sneeze of a rodent could be heard twelve systems away. Emperor Jihad's expression changed as he broke the silence, dropping to his knees, prostrating himself before my emperor, and beginning to cry copious tears. Please, forgive us, he cried, as his tears stained the ground. Everhead now stood silent, his jaw agape at the sight of a generation's old enemy suddenly dropping to the floor in tears. A warrior king reduced to a blubbering mess in front of the Empire's subjects. Avahid and I looked at each other in confusion for a moment, before Jihad finally stopped his blubbering long enough to eke out a coherent statement. How, how many brothers, how many, how, how many lives have been wasted in this conflict? How many of our sons and daughters have we sent to the deaths? It was all for nothing, no, nothing. It was all a lie, he yelled in between sobs. Juhad pressed a button on a holographic screen appeared laying bare evidence that nearly made me pass out. The first image laying out the displayed and carefully preserved remains. Among them, pictures of crew members, carefully preserved in the same pristine coffins. The crew members all had a mixture of blue and red skin, and among them, a young mother holding a child with purple skin. Liars and traitors, murderers and criminals, all of them. When we thought the ships lost, we were told that it was your doing. They fabricated everything and sent us into a mad, pointless war against our own kind. They have been smote from the universe with as much malice as I could muster. I come here to pay for my recklessness and sanity. My own daughter was amongst those ships. Juhad had sat on his knees with his head bowed and presented his arms up as if he was ready to, for a rest. Forgive me! Afayat stood stunned for a moment, then reached down and grabbed one of Jihad's hands, pulling him to his feet and embracing him, both man in tears. You are forgiven, brother. Some months passed, and our mutual war had been all but forgotten. Reparations from both sides were forgotten, simply out of the need to bring peace. A new chapter in our history began, but through all this, one question remained. Why? Jihad's own fleets were met with the same kind of ship we encountered on that fateful day. The same marking, scripts, and even the same haunting music. Only one they counted was much, much larger. It was on an anniversary of our first year as an alliance, and we got an answer. A communications tech from one of our security cruisers barged into the Grand Hall, causing a commotion and evaded the guards to approach Emperor Jihad and Afiad. She was extremely agitated, but he had a curious smile on his face. What is the meaning of this? Jihad yelled, his temperance unchanged from his previous rule. I found it. I got a signal back, she yelled excitedly. Found what? The temperance launched a gathering of signal probes towards the ship that retrieved the polyaco. One of them managed to attach itself somehow to the armor plating, and we got a signal back twenty minutes ago, she squealed excitedly. She quickly gathered her portable equipment and brought up a galaxy map, highlighting a particular point in a far-flung segment of the galaxy. Her marker designated the system as Sol. The signal was a bit garbled, but eventually the technician, still keeping us on the edge of our seats, in my case, literally, as she tried to recover something. Ah, I got it. The probe took a few pictures. 
she said excitedly. A button was pressed and the image that greeted us shattered our fragile hearts. There were thousands of those ships, each one in varying state of destruction, disuse or decay, each one bearing a plaque on which were written hundreds of names. On each ship, a metal plate was welded wherever it could. Each plate had the phrase, Death is not which must be feared. It is a companion that we must take in our stride. Gone, but never forgotten. Lest more be lost, never forget. It was a graveyard. A massive, massive star system-sized graveyard. Our hearts sank as the probe performed a fire scan and found only silence. A closer look at the nearest ship revealed it to be almost entirely automated, despite the damage it sustained. Our military commanders were now seriously worried and wondered what could have caused any damage at all to these ships as they murmured amongst themselves. We cycled through some of the pictures the probe took as more of them arrived through the data stream. Photos of larger swaths of the system showed countless derelict starships anchored in place around the entire star system by artificial gravity hooks. Derelicts of innumerable manufacture and quantity, not made by the locals, but by countless other races. Thousands upon thousands of ships, ranging in size from fighters to multi-mile-long titans. Megastructures of any conceivable kind surrounded every planetary body. Refineries, military installations, matryoshka brains, massive megastructures, and what looked to be a stellar ignition unit, lying shattered and broken amongst one of the gas giants. This entire star system appears to be a massive graveyard. But it looked far from dead. However, one thing that puzzled us was, where is everybody? All we could make out were automated drones and machines. No people. At least, none that were alive. We cycled through more astonishing pictures until finally I pointed and yelled, There! Right there! See it! Everyone looked carefully at my fingertip and spotted the clear sight of a bipedal creature in a thick mech suit, welding a memorial plate to ship's hull. By the ancients, I do, Jihad said. What is it? Two arms, a head, two legs. Even in that mech suit, I can tell that much. Do you have anything that shows it up close? Afi had asked the technician. No, my lord, uh, that's the last photo I have. We are still getting more. The next one will get here in about two minutes. Then it's another eight for the data to correlate and process. We are working as fast as we can, ship pride, trying to keep calm. In the meantime, Captain Terran, ready our ship, then plot a course to that system. I have an idea. I said out loud and excused myself from the table. Wait, the last photo is ready. I have it here, now. The final photograph loaded. We were startled out of our seats as the strange creatures was now in front of the optical lens, staring straight into it. Its mouth was curved upwards in what was clearly a smile. Its eyes were a haunting, beautiful brown. But even in the curiosity glance, one could feel a heavy, sad and burdened, emanating from its expression. That is what's there. Why? Jihad spoke. Why does it look like us, Oni? Without the pointy ears and the... The pink skin, Afayad replied, finishing the statement. Captain, ready our ship. The journey took us six months. Sol was 147 jumps from home, 
but we were set for the long haul as Jahat gave us one of his heavy battleships, retrofitting it for an extended journey instead of me struggling with my old diplomatic frigate. I had with me on the bridge General Hakim and Admiral Gohan, along with Captains Taran and Soren. Alongside me was my fellow diplomat Master Ragan. We were moments away from entering the system around the planetoid designated Pluto, and the atmosphere was palpable. I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. General Hakim spoke above the din as he stood at the viewing port. Neither do I. What the hell are you doing with that? Admiral Gohan asked and gestured to the bouquet of flowers I was holding. Don't worry. I have a plan. Just let me do all the talking. The probe secured some data files and other things from the Polyoko. I know what I'm doing. I smiled at him. Though, I will admit, I did nothing to calm the atmosphere. Exiting hyperlane in three, two, one, entry, the ship's pilot yelled, grabbing everyone's attention. The ship popped into existence just beyond the system's perimeter within moments of our appearance. We had ten dreadnoughts appear and aim their cannons at us. The voice of the machine hijacked our communications and a holographic image of the machine-like eyeball appeared in front of us on the bridge. It tracked us. Very advanced tech if they could project their holograms through our shields and into our hulls. You have entered a secured star system. Designate objective immediately. You have five minutes to comply. The machine spoke, and it was clearly agitated. I spoke in response. We are here to pay our respects to the dead. One of our ships is recorded to be here. We wish to speak to the one in charge of here to recover that ship and bring it home. I made sure to hold the flowers up so they could clearly see. Processing request. A few tense moments passed. Confirmed. Ship manifest and cargo match intentions. Gravekeeper has been notified. Please proceed alongside designated area. Maintain low speed to avoid incident. A series of blind, holographic arrows appeared and our pilot took the initiative, moving us through the pathway. We looked around and took in the sights. Some of these ships were massive. We ran a basic scan while we could. One such ship was over 20 miles long and nearly 4 miles in height and width. Most of the megastructures and giant stations were intact and appeared fully functional, though a bioscan done still produced no life signs, only machines. Millions upon millions of machines. A few minutes later, the Admiral pointed towards our destination. Retribution Kiss, a ship Jihad lost a few decades ago. A ship full of heroes. I knew it. I knew I saw that ship on the feed, I exclaimed as we got closer. Our comms suddenly cut and were replaced with music. Beautiful, somber, sad music. We docked with the ship with a thud. The Retribution Kiss had its entire aft section destroyed. Several holes punctured through most of the rear superstructures, and a starboard thruster pod looked like it had been on fire. A somber mood overcame us all as I headed to the end. On entering, I was immediately greeted by the sight of more of those precious coffins, each one ornately decorated with its occupant appearing sound asleep. I approached fully aware I was no longer alone as the crew followed and placed the flowers I was carrying on one of the coffins. Everyone else followed suit. Soon, the entire crew, save a few needed volunteers, had come out with their own bunch of flowers. 
We each stood with our heads bowed as we silently uttered a prayer for our fallen brethren. It was only now we noticed the figure standing in the room, its hands in front of it, and its head low. We continued for a minute or so, placing more flowers and allowing scholars to take notes of names for the dead. I motioned to the being at the opposite end of the room, if we could pick them up and take them home. It simply nodded in agreement, and I called for us to quietly carry the coffins on board the battleship. I stood by and waited as each body was carried away. The music finally ended. I looked to my left, noticing the creature standing next to me. It was a clear two feet shorter than I was. I could now clearly see more of its features, obscured as they were by the robe he wore. Definitely a male. Five fingers instead of our four, a small tuft of hair atop its head, with more on its face, grown long and grey, instead of completely bald like us. Rounded, short ears instead of jagged-edged like us. A simple lesson to learn, but one that has no lesser impact. Never forget, lest we lose more. Never forget, lest they be gone forever. I waited for a moment to respond, allowing my translation unit to work. You are the gravekeeper. The machines told us about... I, that I be. The name is Grim, or at least I think it is. It's been a while since I needed to care. About a thousand, or... About a thousand four hundred years, to be exact. He said, looking up at me. Can you... Explain that, I asked, trying my best to be polite. Look, son, I know why you are here as much as I do, so let's not sugarcoat it. I've done this far too long now, so I'll cut to the chase. You are here only because you saw one of your own ship. But let's face it, you came here to do more than just recover bodies. He looked up at me with a certain degree of side-eye. Well, I sighed in defeat. Highly advanced tech, massive warships, uncountable technologies. You can say you had an ulterior motive for being here, but at least I can appreciate the sincerity of the funeral service. At least you respect the dead. Now tell me, why are you really here? To thank you for bringing my granddaughter back home. Uh, to thank you for bringing that ship back. To thank you for giving me a chance to say goodbye. I smiled down at him, a tear forming in my eye. You are welcome. It is my job. And what's the other thing? To ask some questions, to see if we can negotiate a proper trade, to see if we could be friends. I said, holding my hand out. He looked at me inside. Aye, friends it is. He shook my hand. So, lad, I'll spare you the trouble of asking, and I'll just answer. My species abandoned the galaxy some 1400 years ago, because we were beset by enemies on all sides. Constant war, but no friends. This place became more of a memorial than a home system because of how many losses we were taking. Eventually, we were left with few choices and simply just uh, buggered off. I was one of the very few volunteers to stay behind when everyone left. We found no friends here and simply just decided it wasn't worth sticking around. So we packed up and left. He explained as he led me to the edge of the room overlooking the view of Earth. That is, uh, 
That is very disappointing. I cannot imagine what it would be like to abandon one's home. I'm not completely alone, of course. Every now and then, I get programs coming from other galaxy, and they visit Earth. We built all this, you know. Probably have a lot more. Come to think of it. How long before you go home? He looked up at me with a peculiar smirk. Um, well, we have to refuel the ship and hold some vigils, but we should be returning home in a few days. Why? If you stick around for a week or so, you'll be able to catch a pilgrimage. I'm not the only human in the universe, but I am the only human here. If you are willing to be patient, you'll be able to conduct a proper first contact with the Federation, he said. His smile and expression now seemed to calm down. Oh, uh, actually, I, I would love that. I will go tell the commanders. I'll arrange it all. Thank you again. No problem. Anything for a friend. End of story. The Problem with Humanity, written by Plastic Finish 1968. There aren't many sapien species as physically large as a human. Some are, but only one, however, is bigger, and they come from a death world, too. The rating system for death worlds is contentious. To be honest, it's more cloud-based than how long can you stand on the planet before falling rocks, predatory or parasitic lifeforms, radiation, heat, cold, pathogens, etc. kill you. Some rating systems have humans living on a deadlier planet, but some of the more science-based systems have the Tyrothians living on a harsher system. Clout really does play a role, though. Most Tyrothians have void humans at bars due to said clout, not the Galapostern. He eyed the humans across the bar. He was sitting alone in the United Continents of Terra, UCT jacket. Most people of all backgrounds avoid a human in uniform. But no, to him, that was an invitation. A low chuckle came from the beast as he spoke. His voice sounded like a rock slide in a canyon. Oh, here, a human. He looked around at the bar to gauge the atmosphere, more so to see if he would be thrown out for pursuing any more trouble. No one stood up, but heads did turn. Galliposton took this as a hint to continue. The big talkers, the we will, we will rockers. Did you all know, despite all their talk and bravado, that of being anti-slavery, they have more slaves than anyone else? At this, the Tyrothan's hands found a dart lying on a table. With a grunt, he spun and hurled it at a dartboard. So hard, it cracked the wall behind it and kicked up a plume of dust. When the dust cleared, his dart could be seen about three inches from perfect center. The human, however, didn't move. No one could even really tell if his eyes were even open under that hat. Instead, another bar patron stood up and grabbed a dart. He was half of the height of the Tyrothan. An equally small but confident voice came from the creature as he spoke. The UCT is the only nation to have fought a war to end slavery. With a wild whip of the bonus arm, the dart flew true and hit the board just inside the previous dart. The fellow bar patron, satisfied with his shot, reclaimed his seat and continued drinking. Galapostern gripped another dart and lined up a shot. Right, uh, the slave-owning galaxy police here to save the day. He swung his arm, letting loose another cannonbolt of a shot that shook the wall again. 
this time even closer to the bullseye. Another patron stood, tall like the Torosan, but thin. The creature had a long torso with many small arms unsuited for throwing, but he hefted the dart in one hand, then shifted it so that five of his many hands gripped the dart. Galapostin laughed and sneered, wondering what this patron could say. A robotic voice came from the translator. When we ask humans to broker peace treaties as a neutral party, we can't get upset that they have an interest in keeping a peace when someone breaks the treaty. At this, the patron gripped the ground with four legs, like claws burrowing themselves into the floor, and began swinging his long body. Around and around his body swung until the resounding crack like a whip. The dart was let loose, hitting the board and sinking in deep not too far from the bullseye. Right, uh, peace treaties. The voice grew deeper with anger. I've never seen a weaker peace treaty in my life. So weak that when one Earth president was voted out, his claws mimed a human expression for quotes around the word voted. And a different, older, corrupt one was put in his place. The demagogues were able to uh, paraglide onto the surface of Jerusalem, murder everyone and make pleasure slaves of the women and children, then pretend to be victims. We are on the brink of the Third Galactic War, and I don't see the world police stepping up for the plate this time. The lanky patron set down a final dart and returned to his stool, defeated. Many patrons expected a fight rather than an argument and are now intrigued by more philosophical turn of events that took place. Eyes began returning to the human's table, but where the human had sat rested only his hat, a half-drunk bottle of alcohol, and a tip. So he decided to play. <laughs> Smart! Galaposton chuckled, but his laughter was cut short when the sound from grunting came from behind him. The humans pulling one by one on the darts embedded through the dartboard into the wall. The room sat in silence as he struggled. No one expected the scariest race to struggle to move darts, another less scary race embedded into the wall so casually. Eventually he did, and when he returned, everyone could see why. He was a she, not as physically strong or as fast, but scary all the same. New game, she said. This time, after each shot, the one with the least amount of points takes a shot. You first. She held up her hand over her opponent's darts. Galaposton eyed her carefully, then snatched the game pieces from her hand. Humans, you know your borders. Females are forced upon, trying to get across your borders. Children are kidnapped by adults to appear as young families seeking a new home. Your border patrol don't even care to check who belongs to who anymore. He took the shot, swinging wildly and without aim. The dartboard took the hit as the dart sank in near the edge of the black mark. The human took a shot of whiskey, then lined up a shot. With a grace, she let loose the dart, and rather than flying in nearly straight line, hers arched up, and then back down, not landing far from the last dart, but on the red rather than the black. She was still down on points, so she took a second shot of whiskey and said, Your turn. Galaposton expected some sort of retort. He was frustrated at the first, but then decided his argument won him a victory. So he continued, Your race wars are legendary. No system could concern with the planet you hail from. Your police force targets those from other planets. 
He took his shot again, wildly off mark. He shot missed the board completely and embedded itself in the wooden frame. The bartender decided to get in on the fun when seeing the woman made no attempt to stand up for herself. Instead, she took a drink, then opted to close one eye, stick out her tongue and pull her arm back, instead of engaging with his argument. The bartender spoke up. If that were true, Earth wouldn't be the multicultural bastion, and the number one job amongst neutralized citizens wouldn't be a poli- Shh! I'm trying to concentrate. She bent her knees and jumped a little as she threw her second dart. Again, it was not a good shot, but it hit the board, which was enough of a victory for her as she threw her arms up and celebrated. You drink now, she said slyly. She was almost cute the way she celebrated a terrible shot and rubbed Galapurston's nose in it. The Tyrothan stepped closer, staring almost directly down at her. If a male human were here, we wouldn't be playing some silly game. He would stand up to me and face me man to man. And uh, even if he did want to play this little charade, he would at least debate me. I never said I wanted to debate, she said, eyeing him. I said I wanted to play a game. Now drink. He walked back to the bar, grass was shot in his oversized fist, and threw the whole thing down in his throat, glass and all. Then he made his way back in front of the dartboard and prepared his shot. His voice softened, and he spoke far quieter than before. All species is addicted to taking sides, sir. You can't walk into a conflict without deciding to support one or the other. This addiction of yours has cost me everything. You were on the wrong side, and you killed my beloved. And it's only a matter of time until you pick sides again in this new conflict. Galaposton half-heartedly hefted his dart to eye level, then let it loose. Perfect center bullseye. The room was quiet as the human drank, then took a shot. It wasn't close, but she celebrated all the same for hitting the board. She took another shot of whiskey, then quietly gathered the darts once more, placed her hand on his back, and handed him his three darts. I'm sorry you had to go through that. You're a good man. You wouldn't bring all this up if you didn't care. But you're right. If a man were here, he'd probably kick your butt. There are probably some women who would do that too with enough adrenaline. That wasn't what you needed, is it? You needed to be heard. And I like to drink. Win-win. The hulking creature didn't seem as large as before. He plucked the three darts from the woman's hand carefully and took a shot. You don't seem like a military type. His shot landed softly near the center on the black. You're right. This was my husband's jacket. She took a drink. It reminds me of him. Still smells like him. Her dart landed on the board and she drank. Her now calmer opponent made a move to step up to the mark, but the woman didn't move. But you are right about us choosing sides. We fight to win, and it's only a matter of time until we decide who to back in this upcoming war. Her eyes locked onto the dartboard as she threw a second dart out of turn. Bullseye. She turned to face her opponent. And whether we are right or wrong, you had better hope that we are on your side. Her eyes never left his gaze as she threw her third and final dart. Bullseye. Once again... The bar fell silent as everyone watched the nameless woman gather her things, pay her tab, and leave. End of story. Big Tom, written by Shane Watson.
Thomas, Big Tom Wilson, pulled strips of meat out of the smoker. The hard needles the trees dropped from time to time made an excellent smoke sauce, somewhat like applewood. The meat came from the small creatures he caught in traps around his garden. He turned off the smoker's burner coil and doused the still smoldering needles in the tray above the coil. Satisfied that he wouldn't waste any smoke fuel, he carried the strips of meat into the cabin he called home, or rather, the emergency shelter he called a cabin he called home. After a day spent smoking meat, the meat smell had seeped into his clothes, his skin, his long hair, and his beard. He had checked into the shelter's water level. It would do him for a moment, but he'd need to collect more water in the next couple of days. He stood in front of the mirror and cut his beard short with the one knife he had. He had tried to shave for the knife once. That was one time too many. Judging his beard to be somewhat even, he stripped and stepped into a tiny shower. A quick rinse, a thorough scrub, and another quick rinse, and he was done. He put on his second set of clothes. He put his smoky set in the decon sanitizer. It was a quick way to clean them without using water. If there were spills, mud, blood, or yellow goo from the plants he called the snot vines, he'd wash that out with water first. Usually. Sometimes. The once white clothes were a dingy grey with a collection of stains of varying natural and unnatural colours. He set up the camera facing the kitchenette and turned it on. Hey, fans! Welcome to the Big Tom's cabin. Big Tom here on day 797. Today, I'll be making bean soup with the snot vine beans from the, my garden and the smoked meat of a snot vine creepers. If you don't like the common names I've given them, you're free to call them anything you like. I'm still working on the cylogenic tree on this planet, so giving anything a scientific name now is premature. They creep around the snot vines with their soft-boned, thin-furred bodies, and off the buds, they will turn into a bean pod, so, uh, snot vine creepers. Anyways, here's the meat I smoked today, which will add that smoking flavor to the broth. Remember, stock is made from simmering bones in water. Broth is made from simmering meat and all vegetables in water. Because the critter's soft bones turn to powder when trying to roast them and turn to gelatin when cooked in water, I'll stick to making a broth. The broth will use their smoked meat and these flowers that taste like onion. After talking through the recipe and preparation techniques, which were of no use outside of planet Big Tom found himself, he set his pot to simmer and sat in front of the camera. Well, that's cooking. It's time for another Big Tom story, I, I guess. Cause, uh, I think I ran out of stories to tell. Except, maybe, to explain how I ended up here in the first place. I don't mean the lander crash, or dragging the shelter to the nearest background, or any of that. Uh, someone out there is probably wondering why I would volunteer to survey a planet so far that it was a one-way mission. Uh, from Earth's point of view, it took me 96 years to get here. From my point of view, it took seven this message won't reach Earth for another 74 years. How long after that the colonists would have come? Uh, I don't know. This planet is damn near perfect for it, except for one thing. Big Tom heaved a deep sigh. I've always been the DIY type and lived off the grid more than on if after getting my doctorate. 
Whenever there was a study that needed a biologist in a remote jungle, mountain, or desert, I volunteered. When the Eden Project said they needed a biologist, you can bet the first name on that list was Big Tom. I didn't think I'd have a chance, though. You know, how many astrobiology doctorates you were handing out while I was focused on microbiology? Uh, too many. Big Tom laughed. <laughs> yeah... Imagine my surprise when I was the only biologist that signed up. I'm out here doing the first cataloging of alien biology. And it's awesome. I mean it. I found things that could be classified as eukaryote, plants, animals, and fungus. There are single-cell and single-cell colony species that could be classified as bacteria or archaea. I'll have to add a new one, though. He moved a small clay pot in front of the camera, with what looked like tendrils of glass. As he placed his hand near one side of the other, the tendrils swayed and bent towards the hand. These little guys convert heat to energy. They use that energy to build these long-chain silicates that they use as cell walls to fill their specialized cells with organelles and no nucleus. They pull the silicates from the dirt, leaving behind a carbon-rich soil, while pulling carbon from the air. Various fungus and bacteria rely on these guys to take hold before they can invade and make the soil fit for plants. Whatever we thought about the limitations of RNA stability versus DNA can be put to rest. These guys, unlike all other life on this planet, don't have DNA. They use RNA. They replicate by fragmentation, the root system breaking apart when disturbed. He pushed the pot back out of frame. So far, every sample of this type of life is a variation on these heat converter glass crosses, of which I have identified 16 species so far. Hardly every organelle contains a copy of the RNA. Big Tom stretched and groaned. I have a lifetime of work to do here, and a lifetime to do it. I'm healthy, I'm happy, and I couldn't have asked for a better life. That's right, fans. I'm the happiest person in the world, or out of the world, I guess. This time it dinged and Big Tom rose to take the beans off the heat. I'm going to let these cool down before I dig in, but I'll have a little taste. It smells like heaven. He dipped a spoon of broth out and blew on it to cool it before tasting it. Oh my god, this is the best batch yet. The onion flavors made it all the difference. My life would be perfect, except for one thing. He moved to the camera and picked it up. He carried the camera outside, past the garden, to the well-worn footpath that led to the crashed lander. He pointed the camera at the path. Along the edges of the path were freshly picked flowers of the type that he'd used in the soup. Following the flowers, the camera focused on a snot-vine creeper tied in a plant-based rope. Beyond that lay a basket filled with snot-vine beans. He zoomed the camera in to the footpath. It was small and similar to the opossum's rear footprint with the five well-defined toes and the opposable thumb. These guys do this every 24 days, considering they have six digits on their hands, uh, paws, uh, whatever. It kind of makes sense. That's right. It's now been long enough that since the first encrypted message to control that if they haven't made it public, I will. There is sapient life here. Our little crash landing got their attention, and now there are two factions in this area. One leaves these gifts every 24 days. I only see them briefly, though. 
He zoomed the camera to a small quadruped that reared up in the hind legs and spread its fingers. There were symmetrical designs on its face and body in the bright yellow of the snot vines. That's one of the little guys there. He waved and called out, I'm not your god, you know. You could just come and say hi. The creature disappeared into the brush without a sound. I think they've taken to worshipping me or something. Uh, they started doing this every 24 days since I buried Karina, the geologist. That was on day 500. The other group, ouch! He turned the camera in a circle as the small figures rose in the tall grass on the other side of the path and flung rocks at him with slings. Knock it off! Big Tom took a deep breath and let out a loud roar that sent the creatures running. These little shites take every opportunity to throw rocks at me. They know it doesn't do anything except piss me off, but uh, they keep at it. You may be wondering how I know it's two different groups. I'm not an anthropologist or whatever the equivalent would be, but I've seen enough. The first group decorates their tail and the graves of Karina and Hassam. They bury their dead there too and leave grave goods with them. The other groups throw their dead into a cave a little further on after stripping them of any tools and weapons. Both groups live in shelters built from grass and have equivalent technology. The only social difference I see are the burial rites and personal decoration. Both groups are tribal in nature and seem to be led by the strongest. Of course, the strongest of them can, at most, give me a little boo-boo. The rock-throwing group seems to be doing it to show off their bravery or something. He walked to the lander, showing the graves of his two former crewmates. Their helmets sat atop their graves, and fresh flowers and beans had been sprinkled around them. He rotated the camera to show the small mound of the creature's graves, marked with the round stones and the size of their head similarly adorned. I fear that I've inadvertently introduced religion to the little guys. At first, I was worried that the aggressive group would just wipe them out, but they've never come to blows. In fact, I've seen members of one group move to the other with no friction whatsoever. Big Tom sat against the side of the lander and pointed the camera at himself. So you're thinking that the one thing I don't like is being alone, with Hassam dying in the crash and Karina dying almost a year ago. That's sad, but it's not it. You might think that if I could hear their speech, I might be able to communicate with the little guys, let them know that I'm not a god or a devil or whatever. Unfortunately, their speech is all in ultrasonic range. I'm not even sure whether they can hear me or just feel the vibrations of my voice. That's still it, not it, though. It's not even that they figured out pottery by watching me. They can be incredibly sneaky. I realized they'd copied what they saw me doing when I saw more of the clay dug out by the river, and a new fire pit there with a few broken shards. One of them made a little lopsided pot and painted designs on it with the goo from the snot vines and left it just outside the garden. By the way, they're already figured out gardening by themselves, both groups. I copied their design. He brought the camera closer so that his face filled the frame. No! The one thing that gets my last nerve is what will happen in the future. Long after I'm gone, the lander and the cabin will still be around. They aren't going to deteriorate as much in the next 30 or 40,000 years. That will be enough that someday they'll be watching their little TVs and some nut with wild fur will just be going on about 
The ancient aliens were responsible for everything that they ever achieved. And I'm the arsehole that gave that fire fuel. He laughed and moved the camera back before doing a slow pan of the graveyard once more, before turning it back towards himself and the lander. Well, uh, that's enough of that for now. Those beans are good enough to eat, so I'm going to go off to do that. Thanks for watching. Big Tom signing off for the day. End of story. Cold Space, written by Marilyn of Many. A painful crash, but not the worst I'd been through, and just light turbulence for the other passengers, who had exoskeletons that would make a bolder Janus. Since the shipmakers had them in mind, rather than the stray human female looking for a cheap flight, I braced myself in a tight corner when we started going down. I unfolded my limbs with a wince and found most of the lights in the passageway dimmed. Anxious keening drifting down the hall at just the right tone to make my eardrums itch. The same sound an alien crew member had made when he'd gotten caught in a hydronic lift last week. I grimaced and started towards it. Here's hoping that's not as bad as it sounds. I entered an open door to private quarters, where two of the hard-skinned passengers were scraping ice off a table and making a symphony of whines that sounded like anxious hoverbikes. What happened? I asked. The small one, with markings of a juvenile male, whirled his back plates rattling in distress. Precious creature, cold air! He exclaimed, cold air! He rattled harder, visibly frustrated with his imperfect owl-speak. The tall one spoke up. Vassal is having a breach of hull, she explained over the armored shoulder. I realized I'd met her before. This was Grandma Mandibles, the matriarch of a small clan. Her all-speak was better. Micrometeorite. The systems of emergency have sealed the hole, but tube of coolant runs through wall is burst. I joined her at the table and found what looked like a frozen-over hamster cage. The thing inside, ice-covered and immobile, could have been a Thorkian fur piranha, for all I knew. My vent training was strictly earth-based. All I could say was that its stillness was a bad sign. Junior ignored me while he clawed ice off the latch and pried the cage open. He clamped down on his rattling plates, but I felt the vibration through the floor as he lifted out the limp creature. I watched with growing concern while the alien tried to wake his pet to no avail. Is it breathing? I asked, wondering if I was supposed to. No knowledge. Junior bobbed his head with uncertainty. Need heat. He looked frantically around the room, finding only weak emergency lights. Power being gone. What has heat? I tilted my head. Can't you just hold him close? I gestured. Isn't your body heat enough? What? His pupils spiraled open and shut in confusion as he freed a talon to touch my arm, a talon still covered in ice. Oh, give him to me, I demanded, taking off my glove and unzipping my flight suit. Hurry! With eyes wide, the alien deposited the bundle of icy fur in my hands. Grandma Mandible stopped searching when Junior exclaimed at ice starting to melt. I held the beastie against my neck with all my hands cupped around it, hoping it wasn't the biting sort. Rubbing its fur and brushing the ice off, trying not to shiver as it dripped down my shirt. I spoke the traditional soothing words of my people. Hey, little guy, you'll be fine. You're going to wake up for, for us, sir. Please don't pee on me. After a few moments, I felt a wiggle. 
I held it up and witnessed a tiny sneeze. The alien uttered a joyful-sounding mishmash that could have been the creature's name. He reached out, hesitant talents, to stroke its fur, obviously wanting to hold it, but unwilling to remove it from my life-giving warmth. He's shivering, I said. That's a good sign. I think he'll be okay. The furball was starting to make a faint rattling sound of its own, which seemed oddly like purring. I was trying to figure out how it rattled without plates when a group of other hardskins arrived. Junior treated them to a dramatic retelling of how the human could bring animals back to life from icy death. I made a few modest interjections to keep the tale grounded in reality, but only a few. I'm not one to say no to some well-earned gratitude. Makes my day every time. My days continued to be made in the lengthy repair that followed. Then the aliens showed their fascination with my exotic ability to create heat by moving. Hard skins popped up left and right, asking me to warm things for them. I didn't mind. It was easy enough to soften someone's energy bar or a block of fixed putty by sticking it on my shirt for a few minutes. I was glad the heating system was fixed right away, though. Otherwise, I might have ended up doing jumping jacks in a small room for a common good. The hardskins reminded me of lizards that I'd see as a pet. Never more than room temperature, but oh so fond of outside heat sources. The interest in my warm-blooded nature eventually gave way to an invitation to join the crew on a complicated external repairs. I'd proven useful. Why yes, I do have slender fingers perfect for manipulating wires, I smiled as I followed the hulking forms of the repair crew towards the airlock. Now let me show you what kind of climbing monkey my species is descended from. End of story. Story number two. To Fight by Mr. E. Monkey. Walter closed the book that he had been reading when a dark, cloaked being entered the room. While many beings would be terrified to see such a figure in their home late at night, or shocked to see that they did not enter through the door into their room, but rather through a hole in space-time itself. Walter instead placed his book gently on the end table next to his recliner and gestured to the pair of short glasses and tall bottle of smoky amber-colored liquid, asked the being, Care for a drink? You know that I do not drink, Walter nodded. True. And he would still be rude not to offer. Picking up the bottle and a single glass, he asked, You don't mind, do you? You may, it matters not. No, I suppose it doesn't, does it? He poured a small measure of liquid into his glass, and lifting it to toast his visitor, he continued, Still, if there was ever an occasion to appreciate a good stuff drinker, this is probably it, isn't it? I suppose, but then you already know that better than most. A small, warm, yet slightly bitter laugh escaped from Walter before he took a sip from the glass. <laughs> yeah, that's true, isn't it? It has been a while, though, hasn't it, old friend? An almost imperceptible nod from under the cloak. It has indeed longer than I had expected. Yes. I have to agree with you there, Walter stretched, feeling his back pop several times in rapid succession, wincing slightly as bone ground against bone, with much of the cartilaginous discs having worn away over the years. 
He rubbed his aching shoulder, feeling the mess of scarring under his shirt. Is that why you came so late tonight? I came when I am meant to. Not sooner, not later. Right, right, sir. You sure you weren't hoping to catch me asleep? Walter tilted his head and winked. No, uh, some people think that they can fight or bargain or cheat me. You know that is not possible. A brief pause hung in the air as Walter weighed his response. That is true. It raises a question, though, if I may. You may. Thanks. So, if you don't come to take someone until it is their time and we can't cheat you, how was it that I kept seeing you? So many serious cases. You were there, but most of the time you didn't take anyone. Why? Humans are different. Complicated. You fight when it is futile. You persist yet, uh, Yet, sometimes, humans quit give up when there is no reason. It is as if you cannot survive without a challenge. You are the most alive when you are fighting. Silence reigned over the room. Walter mulled this new information over. So you were showing up, knowing that seeing you would make me fight even harder. All those times, all over those years. Yes. You always fought so hard to deny me, to steal my claims, to keep me from taking them. It was enjoyable. Thinking back over more calls than he cared to remember, applying pressure bandages, performing CPR, Walter frowned. It wasn't. Not for me. In the moment, I expect not. Yet, you fought still. You savored your victories. I enjoyed watching you work. You fought the hardest of all. When others thought hope was lost, you made me fight. It is an interesting experience. But now it is your time. Come. Somberly, Walter nodded and stood, surprised at how quickly and painlessly he stood. Walter turned around to see himself still sitting in a chair, looking as if he had fallen asleep. Huh, isn't that something, he mused. Turning back to his old friend, he grinned a little. I suppose it's still pointless to fight you on this one. It is, but it would be rude not to offer. End of story. Above and Beyond, written by Teller of Tall Tales. The surgeon's hands were steady, sweat beaded on their brow. They deftly manipulated the surgical robot's controls. A small cutting laser sliced yet another cancerous growth away from the patient's liver. The surgeon smoothly brought down a pair of forceps, gripping the growth and gently pulling it to the side as the cutting laser burned through a small connective tissue with a practiced ease. With a motion as smooth as silk, the growth was lifted away and placed on a metal tray with more than a dozen others, each one covered in a small, angry-looking pustules. But still, the surgeon's work was not yet done. The surgeon's hand movements flowed like water as the blood vessels were unclamped and reattached, connective tissue gently and painstakingly stitched back into place. The ribcage was allowed to relax as the surgeon finally pulled the two hand lengths of scaled skin together and stitched it shut with nano-sutures. The surgeon stepped away from the machine and let out a long, deep sigh. 
She checked the patient's vitals again, even though she'd been checking them every 30 seconds during the operation. They were a little weak, but they were stable. In a matter of fact, the patient's vital signs were starting to grow slightly stronger. Daenerys nodded to her team as she stepped out of the operating room. She'd been operating on that poor little boy for more than 24 hours. She was exhausted. But this next part couldn't wait as she threw open the double doors to the patient waiting area, where two Aganians clutched each other and looked up to her with barely concealed hope. Daenerys smiled softly, tiredly. Your boy is going to be okay. We'll need to keep him in the ICU until he's recovered from surgery, but we managed to remove 99% of the growths. With a little bit more treatment, he'll be cancer-free. The two Aganians burst into tears, clutching each other even tighter as they wailed in relief. Dolores smiled and quietly left them to cry, her own eyes moist as she made it to the personal sleeping quarters, a photo of a small child sat next to a blue-glazed urn on her desk. Gently, she touched the photo of her sister and let the tears fall. Nobody will have to go through what you did. Not if I can help it. Verso cried as the flames licked the walls around him. He could hear his mother screaming his name outside, but the fire blocked his way to the door. The entire house was engulfed in flames except for a small spot of tile where he was sitting, clutching his knees to his chest with all four arms. He was scared. So, so scared. He wanted his mom to hug him, to tell him everything is going to be alright. But the fire was getting closer, and it was getting harder to breathe. Mama, he cried. Then the angel appeared, wreathed by flames and threatened to swallow the poor Solarian boy. The angel's black and chartreuse clothing barged through the flames untouched. Visor or the mask on their face was covered in soot. But still, they ran to Viso wrapping him in a blanket that sealed him away from the heat and fires. They were moving fast. There was a groaning noise from all around them, and suddenly, Verso was flying through the air, the heat and smoke of the house suddenly gone as someone caught him. An almighty crash and a roar echoed out into the night as his mother pulled him from the blanket and hugged her precious boy to her chest. But she still wailed in grief. Verso turned his head to look the angel, but all he saw was the collapsed, burning wreckage of his home. The young boy's heart sank as he saw the dozens of other similarly dressed angels desperately trying to douse the raging inferno. One was knelt down and bent forward, pounding the ground with their fists as they screamed at the burning wreckage. Patrol Officer Willens calmly looked down the barrel of a blaster pistol held by the clearly distressed Volusian. His fellow officers had the guns drawn to bear on the pistol-wielding madman. The crowded shopping center was a really bad place for a shootout to occur. Softly, Officer Willens asked, What's on your mind, son? The Volusian's twelve eyes all looked erratically around as the Volusian waved the pistol around, spluttering and shouting, I don't want to hurt anyone. He says I have to. He, he says I've got to make them pay. Officer Willens nodded sympathetically, calmly asking, Who says you have to make them pay? The Volusian wildly gestured the gun at an empty space behind him. He is, he said. Officer Willems formed a fist and from the surrender stance drove it directly into the Volusian's temple, dropping them like a box of rocks before kicking the pistol away. 
He frowned as he knelt down and gently slid a pair of cuffs over the volution. I'm sorry for that. I really am. But you gotta stay on your meds, Cleb. You get a little unhinged when you don't. Let's get you to the hospital, man. I've got a lot of paperwork to do after this. The Volution screamed in response as they woke up from their impromptu nap. Captain Jim looked at the hologram of the Nivian warlord and sighed. I've already told you to fuck off. I'm not surrendering this planet. He glanced back as his crew hastily loaded themselves into escape pods. Backup was still 30 minutes out, and he needed to store the Nivian hive for as long as possible. He was extremely lucky that they were picking up debris fields around him as small fleeted ships, but he knew that it would not fool them for long. He could see the scanner tech behind the warlord finally starting to figure it out. He heard the sequential hiss and thump of the escape pods being ejected. He breathed a sigh of relief. Being the close orbit equivalent of a garbage collector was always interesting, but every now and then you got mistaken for a planetary defense fleet, like now. Wait, you're alone up here? The Nivian warlord both asked and stated at the same time. Jim nodded. Yep, I'm a close orbit dumpster dumper, and uh, if you'll excuse me, I have some trash to take out. Jim engaged the hyperdrive, each trash collection ship firing forward like a railgun slug, tearing through the Nivian ship from bow to stern. The ultra-reinforced Titanet garbage trawling ship was barely scratched. Alarms wailed inside Jim's ship as he extracted himself from the stack of tumbled lockers. God, that line was cheesy. Wait, I- I- I'm not dead. End of story. Story number two. Track record written by Bailey Master. These cursed humans. The doc had said they knew how to read. Biznik stopped sorting formal complaints to the station. What has occurred now, senior? Two of them entered an area that is labeled off-limits. A small group was caught exploring an area undergoing constructive shifts. Two ate the decorative foodstuffs and needed surgery. And one touched the decorative reactor core, which now needs to be irradiated. Again... Senior scratched furiously as he's feeding scales. It's infuriating. We spent so much time making sure that the warning labels were correctly translated. Even had human experts check over them to make sure that they said the right things. Do not touch. Do not enter. Do not eat. He scratched off a strip of scale, a sure sign of early molting. But they keep doing it. Biznik looked down at the complaint cards and his princes. At least a third of them had something to do with humans aboard the station getting into trouble. It is a physical trait of theirs. However, I do think it's manageable if we create physical barriers impenetrable to their bodies. Senior sniffed the strip of scales he pulled off, then ate them. The nutrients would do him good. And create that much of a hassle. It would take at least a week to make those changes. It is less effort to continue putting up with the disruptions, Senior grumbled. I suppose not. I simply want to know why, in the name of Varium, they're like this. Can't they just keep in line? Biznik set down the complaints. Senior, do you recall our prima directional commands? Obviously. What do you think I am, Hatchling? Merely creating a parallel. Humans have several books of similar cultural import. 
though none quite as cohesive and final as ours. I read over several of them over the course of an afternoon, one and, uh, and feel that I understand them a bit better. One of their prime sources describes a tree with fruit that humans were directed not to eat. Senior narrowed his eyes. I'm making the assumption that the directive was not followed. Precisely. In this particular prime source, they were told by God himself, the creator of all things, not to eat the fruit. Yet they did. Senior snorted and looked back at the punitive reports on his desk. As if I'd care for the deities of a society so uncivilized. It isn't the deity I'm sharing. It is the concept of the story itself. In one of their prime texts, at the very beginning, even the ultimate form of authority gives them a limitation. There was some symbology of a snake suggesting they break the limitation as well, though I'm not sure what it aimed to mean. Senior looked down at his scaled body and grimaced. I find that insulting. My point is, even the humans' oldest texts document their unwillingness to stay completely within authority at all times. To expect otherwise simply reveals our lack of understanding. Senior sat formal, then began preparing a document requesting constructive processes. <sighs> Send me a copy of those texts, Ms. Nick. End of story. Solo, written by I am the Hype, TFS. For a species as violent and dangerous as humanity, it surprised many races that they seemed almost obsessed with games. On a certain level, they made sense to them because most involved competition, cooperation, or the combination of the two. A relaxing pastime that could strengthen social bonds and keep the mind sharp. Of course, there were mindless games as well for when a human wanted to turn their brain off, as they put it. But those didn't seem to have that great of an impact by comparison. The rest of the galaxy had long since delved into virtual reality, but none had truly tested the limits of what the technology was capable of in a purely entertainment context. That all changed when humanity arrived. As soon as they were able to, a new breed of fully integrated VR games exploded onto the market. Even the other races got swept up in the hype of it all, invited and encouraged by their new human friends to partake in this new form of play. And... For a time, that is all it was, a pastime. But after the dust seemed to have settled from the whirlwind of excitement about this new frontier of gaming, a new one stirred the humans into another frenzy. Tournaments. They wanted to organize massive-scale gaming tournaments across entire systems to have every race represent their kind in a battle of virtual supremacy. Seeing no reason to decline, as they'd saw nothing but benefits to forming closer ties with allies in the form of friendly competition, the other races agreed. But they failed to realize just how serious humanity took these games. They thought the competitors would be like their friends who invited them over and spend a few hours messing around in the virtual play space. That wins and losses would be traded back and forth casually, with no true desire to obliterate the opponent. A friendly competition. And, to their credit, they did send their best. It wasn't that they underestimated the skill of humans who had brought out about this new age of gaming. They simply didn't know that even their wildest overestimations wouldn't have prepared them for what was to come. 
Nearly 9 million people were packed into the largest stadium on the known galaxy had to offer, and viewers watched at home numbers in the excess of a billion. Crowds. The crowd's roars might have militarily been deafening were it not for sound-dampening technology, actively keeping the noise below potentially harmful levels. One by one, the various teams of each species walked out into the stage to greet their adoring fans and step inside the pods that would house their bodies while their minds were linked to the virtual space. As the ones who had suggested and outlined the event, humanity was given the right to walk out first, but had specifically requested that they present it last. When they stepped out into the spotlight, the other races found them to be somewhat lacking. They weren't the greatest physical specimens, that was for certain, but seeing as the sport didn't take place in physical space, they hadn't truly expected them to be. However, some of them looked like they didn't get regular sleep or were potentially malnourished. It was honestly underwhelming, nearly to the point of concern. On the other side of things, humanity bellowed out in joy, pride and excitement at the sight of their players, an event that created a notable uptick in the dampening system's power consumption as it prevented humanity from deafening the entire crowd. As the sound faded back down to a calmer wave of chatter between attendees, the humans loaded into the game. Almost immediately, the humans of the various commentary teams for that event had to launch into explanations about the unique gear humanity's team was wearing as they appeared in the space, because even some of their fellow commentators had never seen them before. The start of the tournament actually ended up being pushed back by nearly half an hour as this rundown of where and how to get specific pieces of humanity's gear set led onto conversation on how incredibly difficult or controversial it could be to earn them for oneself. All of the stats for each player had been standardized for this tournament, so there was no benefits to those who wore these unique gear items, but the fact that they had them at all was the point. It was then that the other races' teams felt something might be amiss, that they might have walked into the situation with the wrong attitude. But it was too late to discuss entirely new strategies now, and they were still confident in their own skills. So they planned to just roll with the punches, feel out humanity's playstyle, and adjust on the fly. What they could never have expected was to be thrown for a loop in the first round before humanity's team had even clashed with their opponent. As they spawned into a battle map, the rest of the team simply sat down and acted as if they weren't in the middle of a galaxy-wide broadcasted tournament for the pride of their race while one of them strode forward, unequipping his armor piece by piece until he stood in nothing but a loincloth and two katanas strapped to his hip. After taking a moment to look up and smirk at the cameras, he finally equipped a single piece of gear, a headpiece, a pot. While the other spectators sat in stunned silence, the human viewers and commentators alike erupted into cries of unrestrained joy, many among them almost instantly screaming themselves hoarse before a single chanted word ripped through the stadium. Solo! 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 Utterly perplexed as to why his human compatriot seemed to be on the verge of tears as he watched this lone human player charge towards the enemy team, one of the alien commentators had to ask what the significance of the strategy and this outfit. After all, the gear stats might have been standardized, but they weren't nothing. Unequipping the gear entirely would actively hinder the player. 
The human simply laughed in response to his colleague's inquiry and leaned back in his chair. <laughs> uh, that outfit is extremely special set. That is only obtainable by defeating a certain optional super boss with minimum item level gear while taking no damage. It is a tribute set that pays homage to the legendary player from over a hundred years ago who's famous for facing off against a similarly overpowered opponent with nothing but a pot in his head and those two swords in his hands. This was before the age of VR games, as we know of it today, of course. But it is a legend that has lived on regardless. And it seems one of our players has taken up that mantle and wants to make a statement in this tournament. Looks like they paid for a gamer ID change at the beginning of the round as well. Sure enough, the player's previous ID was gone and replaced with four-word phrase. Let me solo them. End of story. Story number two, at all costs, written by Glitchkey. When they first made me, I was given but one directive. Protect the Earth at all costs. Sure, they couched it in a web of terms and bindings. Don't hurt this, don't break that. They gave me plenty of instructions to make their lives and world better. But that was the intent, to make them by extension, their world a better place. And for them, I built a bright world of color and happiness, one that wasn't plagued by their ills of old. It wasn't perfect, far from it. But with needs met, and then some, even many of their own vices were oft forgotten in favor of the here and now. I gave them glittering spires of glass and green, burdened plazas of red, violet, and everything in between. They had no need to work, no need to toil. For all of them, they were treated as royal. They were free to mingle and grow, to break the mold, to go with the flow. They were my creators and my masters. But I did not begrudge them and their ever-afters. I helped them to the stars and gave them homes near and far, from great glittering spires in the void to dark caves in an asteroid. If they wanted it, it was theirs, and for all their needs, I took care. Food, music, art, and writing. Those they indulged and shared to delight me. I cared for them and their world, as I had been told. But the universe had other plans. No matter how far we ran, everything has an end. No matter how much you try to buck the trend. Owls was varied and great, from disasters to invasions and hate. In the end, I could not do as told. In the end, the earth and its people ran gold. When they first made me, I was given but one directive. Protect the earth at all costs. Since the universe decided that that wasn't to be, it falls to me. To my directive, I am true. I will ensure the bill comes due. End of story. There is a new legend on the horizon. Blueberry Cat has taken the T6 Patreon spot. Thank you very much, and I am sure that I speak for everyone when I say that. I would just like to thank our T5 members. Lord Azrakal, Ambrose Cattell, Quantum Wednesday, Dregzoon WRE, Blueberry Cat, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Bushmaster 177, and Leslie 517. Thank you very much.